let me have a few minutes of your time to consider the Lord Jesus Christ in a couple of His offices. Men need a king, and men need a priest. In a world of sin and trouble, men need a king and a priest for each of their official functions. We don't have to read very far in the Bible. In fact, we don't get past Genesis chapter 10 when we read about the first kingdom in the earth because a mighty one before the Lord named Nimrod built a kingdom in the plains of Shinar at Babel. We don't have to read very far in the history of Israel when they showed their discontentment with judges and they demanded that Samuel give them a king. If you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8, we can read about this event in the Word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 8. We have lost the appreciation for a king because we have a different form of government with a president and with Congress and with a Supreme Court. In a king, you had all three wrapped up in one man. And it was a much more efficient form of government. It could bring to bear the judgment of a good man, a wise man, who had supreme authority very quickly. But let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel and his sons are the judges of Israel, but they were wicked men, unlike their father Samuel. And it's such a shame, since Samuel should have learned the lesson well by Eli and his sons, that he would have sons that would be ashamed to him and a pain to all of Israel. Because it says in verse 3, His sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, and took bribes, and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. All the nations of the earth had kings, even if they called them emperors or pharaohs or queens. They had monarchs that ruled over their nations like a dictator. A benevolent dictator is a wonderful form of government because it's the least expensive. And it's so consistent, generally, because you have one man making the decision instead of 535 plus plus another dozen, plus a few more, plus a cabinet, and plus others, all arguing and bickering with each other. But that's not the point of what I want to cover. We need a king to protect, to provide, to empower us by his sovereign power and by his wealth. But at the same time, we need a priest to intercede for us, to comfort us, to offer sacrifices for us, to make peace with God, and to bless and sanctify our worship and our lives. Let's consider this a little closer. 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 20 will explain to us the value of a king. 1 Samuel 8.20 The people have asked for a king and they explain why in verse 20. That we also may be like all the nations. What a shame. Why would anyone want to be like all the nations when you could have the most unique nation on earth 
a theocratic kingdom under the God of heaven with appointed judges that he chose. That we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Israel describes the desired role of a king in this verse. One function is to judge, that our king may judge us. He's the legislator, he's the court of hearing, and he's the executor of judgment against civil enemies, so that he can protect protect the citizens of his kingdom in their person, in their property, and in their rights. Israel resented Solomon Samuel's sons because they were not good judges, so they wanted another judge. They should have been content with the Lord himself to be their judge. But the first role of a king is, he's a judge. If you could have a hearing with David, in a couple minutes you could tell your story, and in less time, David would make a decision. And that decision would carry with it all the authority of his supreme government and of the army that obeyed him. And he would enforce that covenant, or that contract, or that ruling of his, on your neighbor if it was property rights, on some man if it was a business transaction, or on some criminal if some offense had been done against your family. One function is for a king to be a judge. He's a legislator, he hears in his court, and he executes against enemies. Very efficient form of government. To have it in one person so that it's not diluted. Our nation has been taught to think that the the, the broader that we average authority the better it gets. The broader you average authority, the lower it goes. Because in order to add to the numbers of those you're averaging, you have to dig deeper or dip deeper into the cesspool of humanity. Our trial by jury is a great example in our country. When you take just about the dumbest people that you can find on the streets of our cities, set them in a room, and say, you make a decision about what just took place. Would to God, the man in the black robe sitting behind the bar made that decision based upon the years of experience and the ability that he has to be in that office. But that's another point for another subject. If David heard your case, it was going to be over. The Bible says in various places, in several books of the Bible, about kings, like the kings of the Persian Empire or the kings of the Babylonian Empire, that once they issued a law, it could not be altered. And let it be done with haste. And it actually says that about the decrees of kings. A king has the desired function, first of all, of executing judgment. We want a king to judge us. You can believe in separation of powers all you want, and God has used the separation of powers for our benefit to have the gospel go forth with quite a degree of freedom in this nation over the last 300 years. But there's a more efficient way of government than was in the Bible. And the reason I'm going to call it the more efficient way of government is because the government that we are under in the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a monarchy. It's not any form of a republic or a democracy. It is an absolute despotic dictatorship in the hands of a king. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and of the increase of that government, there will be no end. It is absolute in its authority and the extent of its reign. And it lasts forever. Thank you, Lord. Another reason that Israel gave to want a king to be like the nations around them was for him to go out before us 
and fight our battles. In that 20th verse, a king is a courageous leader of men to face other nations in battle. Israel misjudged the value of Samuel. They should have been wise and realized that having Samuel pray was better than having some brave and courageous leader lead them into battle. Because you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7, just three chapters, or one chapter earlier than this chapter, and there Samuel kills a sucking lamb and prays for Israel, and God discomforts the Philistines from heaven, and they win a great victory because of Samuel's prayer. Oh, that's better than some man with a fancy uniform on, on the best horse in the nation. But, the, but a man with a fancy uniform and the best horse in the nation helps the little people with little minds. The little people with little minds are able to look at that leader as his horse prances back and forth in front of them, and the serfs are willing to die because their king gives them a little two-minute speech and leads them into battle. And so there's a place for a king, and Israel wanted that kind of a king. They wanted a king that could negotiate peace on their terms. They wanted a king that would lead them into battle against other nations. It's the authority, the courage, and the presence of a king that helps motivate the serfs to die. I mean, how else do you get the little people to die? You give them a uniform, you give them a weapon, and then you put a king in front of them, and he's willing to lead them, and the little people will follow the king. Thousands, millions will follow him and lay down their lives for their country. And so it's been for 6,000 years. And they wanted that. With police power and the the standing military obeying the king, the king could muster the whole nation to fight a war. He didn't have to worry about a volunteer army, and he didn't have to worry about people filling out their draft papers right. They just came to your farm and took your sons and put them in the army. And they served a king. No matter what your fears or needs were, in private or public, a king could quickly remedy them. If another nation was threatening your nation, the king could raise an army and fight a war. If you had property rights that were being disputed, the king could intervene on your behalf. If you had a problem with the IRS, the king could hear it and tell who was right or wrong. There are such cases in the Bible about kings making a decision on the spot to solve taxation issues, disputes of all kinds. You can probably think of Solomon as two women fought over one child, as to whose child it actually was. What's the function of a priest? Look at Hebrews chapter 5. The Bible has not left us ignorant of the function of a priest. What a blessing. Do you know, to to ever get to the Supreme Court of the United States, you have to go to court so many times over so many years, you give up. And if you don't give up, you're broke before you get there. But if you could make it into David, you didn't have to pay to get in to see David. You could come in before David and tell him your story, and he would listen to it carefully. And if you had enough evidence to to support you, he could make a ruling right then and there on your behalf. It's wonderful. You say, but not all kings are like David. That's right, and not all Congress is like the Continental Congress. What's the difference? You say, well, at least there's many of them. They keep bad legislation from happening because there's many. Is that true? I don't see any benefit by having many. I wish there was one man in office that could overthrow overthrow and overrule all the things that our Congress and our Supreme Court have legislated 
or defined in the last several decades. But we don't have a king. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to the Apostle Paul explain to Israelites who very well knew what a priest was for on the role of a priest. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. Why do you need a priest? You need a priest to deal with God on your behalf, verse 1. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins in order to make peace with God. Number 2. You need a priest who can comfort you by the fact that you are not alone when you sin, that he himself has sinned, and thereby he can have compassion on you when you're ignorant of the law. He can have compassion on you when you sin presumptuously and are out of the way, for he himself has sinned likewise. This priest, by reason of the fact that he has sinned like you have sinned, he offers sacrifices for your sins and for his as well. This is the role of a priest. It's a go-between God and men. It's a mediator between God and men. Both kings and priests have desired functions, and we need both. We need a king for the trouble and the enemies that we have in this world, whether they be as small as your physical health, or as great as death, or as great as sin, or as great as the devil himself. We need a king that will do battle against those troubles and enemies. We need a priest to cover for our sins. We need a priest to make peace with God so that we do not stand before God in pure justice. God is just. If Romans 1 and 2 is not teaching you that yet, you haven't listened. God is just, and we need a priest to intervene for us with Him. Now, in the Bible, there was a great separation of powers. God limited His kings, after Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, to the tribe of Judah. The prophecy had been given early that kings, the scepter, would not depart from the tribe of Judah. And the priests came from the tribe of Levi. So God built in the separation of powers that a king would not be priest and a priest would not be king. The kings came from Judah and the priests came from Levi. Under David, there were two high priests, Abiathar and Zadok. Abiathar lost his office by God's ordination when he followed Adonijah against David. And so Abiathar lost his office to fulfill exactly what God had told Samuel about what he was going to do to Eli's family. you got to read the whole Bible. You will read about events way over here that were prophesied way over here. When Samuel woke up that night and heard that message from the Lord about his master Eli, it was horrible. It was about his whole family tree was going to be cut off from being the chosen priests of Israel. And God would wipe out his descendants. And some of it didn't happen for a number of years. But it did happen. Eventually, Abiathar had to come and beg Zadok, metaphorically, for a piece of bread. Just like Samuel had prophesied to Eli. But the offices were separate. 
However, look in your Bible at Genesis chapter 14. Genesis, now that's pretty close to the front of the Bible, isn't it? Genesis chapter 14. Every man needs a king. A king that can make a judgment and say, you're right and your enemy, your personal enemy, your civil enemy, your business enemy is wrong and I make a judgment. And when, a, when David made a judgment, your life was at stake. It was serious. It was enforced by the sheriffs and the magistrates under David and by his princes and by his army. It was enforced. If David thought a person needed to die, all he had to say was to Joab or Benaiah, Joab's replacement, that don't let that man's hoary hairs go down to the grave in peace. Don't let his white hair die in peace. Cut him off. And it would happen. That's a king. And that's a wonderful thought to even think about it, if all your enemies could be dealt with so powerfully and so easily. But then we need a priest to make peace with God. So that he could offer sins for us and he could be very compassionate toward us because he had sins of his own so that we go and confess our sins to this priest, he would understand. Because he could say, son, I've committed that sin myself numerous times. Let me go and offer a sacrifice to God for your sin. I've offered it for my own already. We need a king and a priest. But they were separate in Israel. So we need two offices, a king and a priest. But Abram arms his 318 trained servants and chases down four kings that are in confederation that came and stole his nephew Lot, his family, and all that he possessed and took the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, the neighboring villages there, captive. Abram, by the grace of God, goes and recovers all. And he comes back home. And we read in verse 18. Let's get verse 17 so that you can see the context. The king of Sodom went out to meet him, that's Abram, after his return from the slaughter of Kedar Laomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shavi, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him, that is, Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he, that is Abram, gave him, that is Melchizedek, tithes of all. You say, are you sure about your application of the pronouns? Absolutely, without a doubt. On what basis? On the basis of the 28 verses in Hebrews chapter 7 that tell us very carefully about this transaction. Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek because Melchizedek was far greater than Abraham. The greater man blesses the lesser man, and Hebrews 7 tells us that. And then Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek, showing again that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. No wonder there's the seventh chapter in the book of Hebrews, because when Paul is writing Hebrews, who put their trust in Abraham, it was very helpful to him to bring up Melchizedek, who was greater in Abraham, by both measures, by the blessing and by the tithes. But notice, it is one man who is king of Salem, 
Salem is shalom, peace. It's the shortened version of Jerusalem. You can go to Psalm 76 and verse 2 and find out Jerusalem called Salem. Melchizedek was the king of peace. He was the king of Salem. Shalom means peace. His name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. You say, how do you know that? What lexicon did I use to find out the meaning of Melchizedek? The lexicon called Hebrews chapter 7. It tells you there that Melchizedek, by interpretation, is king of righteousness. Now that's the kind of king you want. Do you know why most people don't like absolute dictators or monarchies? Because what if we get a bad king? Well, I don't see the difference between a bad king and a bad congress. But that's for you to worry about because that's not the point of my message. The point here is this king named Melchizedek was king of righteousness and king of peace. Those are two traits of a wonderful king. He's righteous. Justice and judgment were the marks of his kingdom. And he was a king of peace. He made peace, whether by conflict or proper negotiation. There was peace and settled living in his kingdom. A king of righteousness and peace. Amen. What did he do when he saw Abram coming back from this great victory? He brought forth bread and wine. He brought forth bread and wine. That's a simple meal. Bread makes strong the heart of man. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. Wine makes glad the heart of man. Psalm 104, 14 and 15. And they had a simple meal. And Melchizedek blessed Abram. And Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. So we have a hint in the 14th chapter of the Bible of this important role of king and this important role of priest being put together in one man named Melchizedek. I have not turned you to Hebrews chapter 7 because of time. If you want to read something wonderful after today, Go read Hebrews 7 and all that it says about Melchizedek. But turn with me to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. And humor me by listening for a few minutes to one of my favorite psalms. And I hope that truly you're humoring yourself. This is a wonderful psalm. It's only seven verses long. While it does have the most obscure text in the entire book of psalms, It can be understood. Psalm 110, let me read it to you. The Lord, it's in the book of Psalms, it's number 110. My page number won't help. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. 
He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. This is the word of the Lord. This is Psalm 110. Very quickly in the first verse, the Lord Jehovah. When that Lord is all capital letters, you know it's Jehovah God. The mighty God of heaven and earth, creator of the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Jehovah is all capitals, L-O-R-D, because L-O-R-D is representative of the Hebrew tetragrammaton of four syllables representing I am that I am. This is Jehovah. But there's another Lord in verse 1 that is a lowercase O-R-D. And that is a king that he would ordain and promote and appoint to be his king at his right hand. The Lord Jehovah said unto my Lord. David is speaking and David is admitting that though he is a king, the Lord Jehovah has placed a king over him. We don't want to give that away yet. You probably don't even know where we're going. The Lord said unto my Lord, David had a king that was ordained and appointed by God. Every man needs a king. And we want a king that's righteous. Psalm 45 tells us all about the righteousness of this king's scepter. But we don't have time to go to my favorite psalm. We're here in 110. Sit thou at my right hand, king, that I ordain until I make thine enemies thy footstool. I will enable you and help you perform by divine power the overthrow and subjugation of all your enemies. The Lord, Jehovah God, verse 2, shall send the rod of thy strength. David is now addressing his king appointed by the Lord Jehovah out of Zion. He would rule in the capital city of Zion, and his strength and his rod would go out of that city, and he would reign. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. This is one of the most stupendous events in the universe. Jehovah God appointing a king to rule over all his enemies. And David himself loved the matter and called him my king. The Lord said unto my Lord. David didn't address anyone else on earth as my Lord. Trust no way. It never crossed his mind. He had everyone addressing him as my Lord. Verse 3, thy people. David is addressing the king appointed by the Lord Jehovah. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. This is a promise that the citizens of this king's kingdom were going to be willing, eager, submissive citizens. And that they would follow him. And that there was going to be a, a, an event of power that would take place that would be like the bursting forth of a new day in which with that power resident in the king, all his subjects would follow him. And that he would perpetually have the strength and vigor of his youth. We'll come back. Verse 4. The Lord. It's back to Jehovah. The Lord Jehovah has sworn. This is no light matter. He has taken an oath and sworn and will not repent. It can say whatever it wants to in the Bible, but the laws of the Persians cannot be altered. The laws and the kingdom of the Persians have been altered forever. But this king, this Lord Jehovah, swore with an oath, and he will not change his mind. Thou, 
He has said in verse 1, sit thou at my right hand. In verse 4, he says, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord Jehovah has established a man as David's king in verse 1 and has given him authority and power to rule over his enemies and to have a huge willing citizenship in his kingdom in verses 2 and 3. And now he makes him a priest after the order of Melchizedek by order of the Lord Jehovah with an oath that he will not repent of. Now David addresses the king in the second person. I mean, he addresses, he addresses the Lord Jehovah in the second person, and he refers to the king with the small O-R-D. There in verse 5, the Lord, small O-R-D, at thy right hand. Who is at the right hand of Jehovah God? The king that he had ordained and appointed in verse 1. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up the head. He is going to be entirely successful. He will not just be able to subdue the soldiers of foreign armies. He will be able to subdue the heads of those armies. He will not stop. He will drink of the brook in the way, showing his carelessness, because he doesn't have to worry about his enemies. Therefore he shall lift up the head in total success, Total confidence, total victory, rejoicing in his power to subdue his enemies. This is, in general, Psalm 110. In specific, it is quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is quoted by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Hebrews chapter 1. It is referred to by Peter and Paul indirectly in Acts chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 10, 1 Peter chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 1. This psalm. And then of course, Hebrews 5, 6, 7, and 8. All about the priest after the order of Melchizedek by Paul. Repeatedly using this psalm. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of it. And we sit and have bread and wine with the Lord Jesus Christ this day at our communion supper. This is the Lord Jesus Christ in the first verse. Jehovah God appointed the Lord Jesus Christ to be the king of the universe. He is our king. David called him my Lord. He is our Lord, and He sits at God's right hand, and God is slowly, by the purpose, for the purpose of long-suffering, subduing all His enemies to the Lord Jesus Christ. The last enemy that shall be subdued? Death. When He abolishes death, ultimately and finally, and raises all the dead bodies from the grave. The Lord, in verse 2, Jehovah God, is going to send the rod of thy strength, That is the Lord Jesus Christ, strength out of Zion. Starting in Jerusalem, where the Lord Jesus Christ died for us, and then something even more glorious, rose from the dead for us. The rod of His power would go out of Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. As the kingdom of God was, and the kingdom of Jesus Christ was preached to the nations in the day of His power. The day of His power was when the kingdom of God came with power. 
When He was no longer the, the Christ and the Lord of humiliation, but the Christ and the Lord of exaltation. When He rose from the dead and was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of holiness. He said to His apostles after He rose from the dead, All power is given unto Me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. He has been crowned with glory and honor in the hallways of heaven, and He sits at God's right hand. You can read all about it in Revelation chapter 5. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. The gospel message of the kingdom of Jesus Christ exploded after the resurrection. After the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, those pitiful apostles, who were afraid to even admit they knew Him while He was being crucified, stood up and confronted the entire Jewish nation on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 were converted that day. Thy people shall be willing in the day of Thy power. They'll be made willing by the day of His power. It was as if a new day was bursting forth. It was the rising of the Son of Righteousness. It was the rising of the Son of God out of the grave to lead a kingdom of Jesus Christ, His kingdom of God, in the world. From the womb of the morning, just like the darkness of the morning is like a womb and it gives birth to the rising of the sun, so there was a birth of the kingdom of heaven, and it exploded in the earth. Jesus said it's like a a seed of a mustard tree. It's the smallest of seeds, but once it's planted, it grows into the greatest of all herbs, and it filled the earth. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness, Jesus was raised by the Spirit of holiness from the dead. I compare Scripture with Scripture. I don't care what anybody else has to say about a verse if it doesn't match up with Scripture. I also know that God would not allow His Holy One, His Holy One to see corruption. But there would be a new holy kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of power and reigning at the right hand of God. And in that new kingdom that was fully displayed to the world, fully displayed to the universe, the angels included, as they sing its praises in Revelation chapter 5, the people of God became willing. They're shouting and singing in chapter 5. They're shouting and singing in chapter 12. They're being baptized in Acts chapter 2. There's another 5,000 being added in Acts chapter 3. And the church is multiplied, and it spreads, and it spread all the way to us. His people shall be made willing in the day of His power. Verse 4, the Lord Jehovah also made the Lord Jesus Christ our high priest. Now Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, so he couldn't be a priest under the Old Testament. Because to be a priest in the Old Testament, you had to come from the tribe of Levi. So how in the world could Jesus be a priest? Since he came from the tribe of Judah, the royal tribe, the kingly tribe. Because he was a priest after a different order. The order of Melchizedek. And so the uh, David, hardly knowing the details of what he's writing, refers back to Genesis 14, provides material for Peter, Jesus, and Paul in the New Testament by writing, The Lord, Jehovah God, has sworn with an oath, and He will not repent. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We have in one man who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high at this hour, a king and a priest. What else do you need? This is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Why Why would you ever fear trouble? Why would you ever fear any enemy? Why would you ever fear death? You have a king 
who died for you. No other king has ever done that. Other kings have gone to battle and died, but they didn't want to die, nor did they plan to die. And they only died because the serfs behind them kept pushing them into battle, and they faced an enemy that was stronger than they and overthrew them. Our Lord Jesus Christ was a king who died not for his citizens, but for his enemies who were the willing citizens of another power. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared on their behalf and took them captive out of that other king. He's the king of the bottomless pit. His name is Apollyon and Abaddon. He is that old devil. He's the serpent and he's Satan. The Lord Jesus Christ defeated him and took us captain out of his palace and away from his kingdom and has translated us into the kingdom of God's dear son. We are blessed abundantly with this news. Why would you ever fear trouble? You know, if you could get an audience with David, you could tell David, my daughter is very sick and I've spent all my living on physicians. What can you do for me? David could lift taxation from that man. But let me tell you about the son of David. He can heal that daughter with his word. Praise the Lord. Why would you ever fear anything? The reason people band together in kingdoms and choose a king is because they want a brave, powerful leader in whom they can entrust all the wealth and the men of the, of the kingdom to wage war for them and to execute judgment for them. That's what a king is for. Judgment and waging war. We have no superior to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jehovah has chosen a man to be David's king, to be your king, to be my king. He's able to execute judgment for us in every part of your life. He's able to defeat all your enemies of any kind that you face. And he took on death himself and willingly went through death. And it it was the death of the cross. And it was the death of being forsaken by God and the death of opposing the devil himself. And won the victory. He has shown us how to die. And he's on the other side of the curtain of death. With his arms open wide. To receive us when we do die. Amen. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Why fear sin? He's also your high priest. What kind of a sacrifice does he bring? To almighty God to make peace. For your sins? His own blood. What is his relationship to God? Does God accept him? He is his only begotten son. The Lord Jesus Christ. He's a king priest with no peer. He's our savior and we celebrate him at the Lord's table. Our, Our king priest has declared that all that come unto me I will in no wise cast out. You can run to that that king today and be given an audience in the throne room of heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ, hearing your every petition and turning it to his father. It doesn't get any better. The whole drama of the universe is moving toward the day in which this king shall be revealed. King of kings and Lord of lords. So thorough has he, the king of kings and Lord of lords, he's made us kings and priests ourselves because we shall trample the enemies of God right along with him and we are able to go straight into the throne room of God ourselves by what he's done for us. Why would you fear anything? No priest has ever lived without sinning himself. Our priest 
faced all the temptation we'll ever face, yet without sin. That's the kind of priest I want going to God. Not one who has to offer sacrifices for his own sins. Do you believe this, brethren? It should purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. According to Hebrews 9.14, you should want to be baptized if you're not baptized to give God the answer of a good conscience for what He has done for you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Angels appeared to the shepherds in the fields of Judea and told them that there was goodwill toward men. And a great thing was happening that night. That unto you is born the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ, the anointed Messiah or priest of Israel and Lord. He's king and priest. And as Melchizedek brought forth bread and wine to celebrate God's blessing about a great victory over enemies in Genesis 14, we bring forth bread and wine to celebrate Jesus Christ's great victory over sin and death, the devil and hell, the grave, and all that you can list. He's won the victory over it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise His glorious name. Love Psalm 110. Understand every pronoun in it and rejoice at what it combines together. King, priest, Jesus our Lord, seated at God's right hand, walking in this temple because He's willing to come down to us. We are His children. He will not lose a single one of us. We remember His death till He comes by bread and wine, just like Melchizedek and Abraham. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.